Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's July 17, 2012, Skype class, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 18, Maharaj Brickett, Cursed by a Brahmin Boy, Text 41. Sabramano Natmajam Abhyanandat Ahobatano Maharajate Kritam Alpiasi Droha Urdamodrita Nishamya. After hearing. Shaptam. Cursed. Ata Arham. Never to be condemned. Nara Indram. Unto the king, best of humankind. Saha. That. Brahmanaha. Brahmana Rishi. Na. Not. Atmajam, his own son, Abhyanandat, congratulated, Aho, alas, Bata, distressing. Amhaha sins Mahat great Adya today Te yourself Kritam performed Alpiasi Insignificant Drohe 
Offense. Uruhu. Very great. Damaha. Punishment. Drittaha. Awarded. Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. The father heard from his son that the king had been cursed, although he should never have been condemned, for he was the best among all human beings. The Rishi did not congratulate his son, but on the contrary began to repent, saying, Alas, what a great sinful act was performed by my son. He has awarded heavy punishment for an insignificant offense. So Shringi probably assumed that his father would be happy with him, and instead his father was lamenting. Before we go into the purport, this reminds us of after the battle of Kurukshetra, when Asvatthama killed the five sleeping sons of Draupadi after the battle was finished and he presented their heads to Duryodhan hoping that his master would be pleased and Duryodhan was very aggrieved he said now you've destroyed the last persons in our dynasty he said our dynasty will not continue sometimes the way to hell is paid with good intentions I, what Prabhupada is talking about here in this purport, I believe that most of us at this time in 2012 are going to find very astonishing and probably very difficult. So Srila Prabhupada's purport. The king is the best of all human beings. He is the representative of God and he is never to be condemned for any of his actions. In other words, the king can do no wrong. The king may order hanging of a culprit son of a brahmana, but but he does not become sinful for killing a brahmana. Even if there is something wrong with the king, he is never to be condemned. And Prabhupada gives here an example, and now he's going to give an example that he's hoping will clarify things. But I think, uh, again, for us in 2012, I think this example just makes it more difficult. I remember Srila Prabhupada wrote this in India in what the... 50s and 60s. A medical practitioner may kill a patient by mistaken treatment, but such a killer is never condemned to death. So I'm not sure if that's actually true anymore. Prabhupada goes on. So what to speak of a good and pious king like Maharaj Pariket? In the Vedic way of life, the king is trained to become a Rajarsi or a great saint, although he is ruling as a king. It is the king only by whose good government the citizens can live peacefully and without any fear. The Rajarshis would manage their kingdom so nicely and piously that their subjects would respect them as if they were the Lord. That is the instruction of the Vedas. The king is called Narendra, or the best amongst the human beings. How then could a king like Maharaj Pariket be condemned by an inexperienced, puffed-up son of a Brahmana, even though he had attained the powers of a qualified Brahmana? Sinshamika Rishi was an experienced, good Brahmana. He did not approve of the actions of his condemned son he began to lament for all that his son had done. The king was beyond the jurisdiction of curses as a general rule, and what to speak of a good king like Maharaj Pariket. The offense of the king was most insignificant, and his being condemned to death was certainly a great sin for Shringi. Therefore, Rishi Shamika regretted the whole incident. Nisamya Shaptam Ahad Aratamna Indram Yes? 
Yano Natmajam Abhyanandat Aho Batam Ho Maharajyate Kritam Alpiasi Droha Urudamodrataha The father heard from his son that the king had been cursed, although he should never have been condemned, for he was the best amongst all human beings. The Rishi did not congratulate his son, but on the contrary began to repent, saying, Alas, what a great sinful act was performed by my son. He has awarded heavy punishment for an insignificant offense. So what Prabhupada is saying here seems inconceivable. In fact, it seems to us in the modern day as very dangerous. Prabhupada is saying here that if a king kills a brahmana, he's not considered a killing of a brahmana, a killer of a brahmana. He says the king can do no wrong. He says even if there's something wrong with the king, he's never to be condemned. And he compares this to a doctor who accidentally kills a patient but is not awarded the death penalty. Of course, in modern society, if a doctor accidentally kills a patient, at the very least, he is sued. <laughs> he is given a malpractice suit. Of course, Shil Prabhupada writes here that the king is trained to become a Radarshi, and that's a very significant point in understanding what Shil Prabhupada is saying. Now, all over the world, empirical research has shown that all over the world, every society has a moral principle that someone in a position of authority is to be treated with more respect than others, and that a crime or even a social offense against a person in authority is considered more serious. We can understand the basic natural, we could even say biological root of such a moral principle, and that all of us have parents. Nobody comes into the world without parents. And in the normal course of events, the parents take good care of the children. The parents maintain the children and give them everything. Again, in the normal course of events, there are a bad or neglectful parents. But generally speaking, the mother is taking so much care of the baby in the womb, the father is taking good care of the mother when she is pregnant and during birth and the tiny baby and all during one's upbringing and even adult children. So parents will generally, again, sacrifice for even their grown children. Parents basically are willing to sacrifice for their children all during their life. And how is it possible to repay the debt to one's parents? So therefore, this idea that someone who takes care of you, like the parents, uh, like the government officials, that they should be given unusual allegiance when a country is being threatened so people will join the military and make the ultimate sacrifice of their body. They're willing to give their lives or they're willing to risk severe bodily injury and being disabled for the rest of their life and in pain for the rest of their life out of gratitude to the government that is maintaining them and taking care of them. The king is really like a big father. The king and queen are considered the father of the whole country, father and mother of the whole country, taking care of the citizens in the same way one sees the priest. It's like in the Catholic Church they call the priest father. So one sees religious leaders also as like parents who take care of one and one should be willing to sacrifice for them and to excuse them. So if, if our parents do something wrong, uh, generally we excuse, we don't consider. 
oh, I, my parents need to be punished, or I need to renounce my parents if they've done something wrong. So parents sometimes, every normal parent that I've met sometimes becomes angry at the child or punishes the child. And sometimes the parent becomes angry and punishes the child, even when the child is not really deserving of it. The parent is just tired or whatever. But the child doesn't renounce the parent. The child is still indebted to the parent and serving the parent. So that is the principle that Srila Prabhupada is talking about here. And of course, in modern society, we no longer really feel this way about authorities. Children no longer are trained to respect their parents. As, as Again, this is general, uh, not individual. There will be exceptions. but Or people respecting their government, especially, even if there's still some respect for elders in the family. There's very little respect for the government. We tear down our government officials constantly. And any wrong thing they do is immediately taken up like wildfire by the press and the citizens pounce upon it. And even when I was a child, and when in my childhood, John F. Kennedy was president of the United States, and later on it came out that he had had so many illicit affairs, he had had so many women. But during his presidency, this was not made public. Nobody discussed it. Whereas not too long ago, we had with President Bill Clinton, it was a major public scandal. So why this difference? Why formally, if the president, if the leader did something wrong, it was basically kept quiet and was not for public display or public discussion. And nowadays, if the leader does something wrong, then everybody is pouncing on it immediately, even before it's proved, as soon as there is some allegation that a person in a leadership position has done something wrong, then it's something like a feeding frenzy of sharks and everybody pounces on the, on the leader. And this is true for anyone in a position of authority. You know, women criticizing their husbands, leaving their husbands, oh, I'm, I'm not going to stay with my husband anymore because I'm not able to realize all my own desires or rejecting the guru, the, the husband, the guru, the political leader, the father and mother the teachers. There was a cartoon someone sent me, which is unfortunately very accurate, of these parents and their child and a teacher. And in the first one, it says, like in the 1960s, so the child gets bad grades, the teacher is smug, and the parents are yelling at the child. And nowadays, when the child gets bad grades, the child is smug, and the parents are yelling at the teacher. So we've seen this kind of shift those of us who are in positions of leadership, those of us who are parents or gurus or teachers or running something, we see that as soon as you take on any position of authority and responsibility like that, you might as well just be putting a target on your chest and your forehead and your back. You know, three targets. Please shoot me. I know when I was uh, talking some years ago to the GBC chairman, he said, you know, anybody who tries to become a guru... He said people will bring up if you you know, blew your nose the wrong way and threw the Kleenex into the wrong rubbish bin and they'll put it all over the internet. So this concept of attacking the leaders, not only attacking the leaders, but here Shamakarishi is saying, he's saying, Alpiasi drohe uru damaha, that for a small offense you have given a great punishment. So of course death punishment is one of the greatest punishments. But we could say that from one perspective, was Maharaj Brickett's offense small? 
he insulted a brahmana who was in ecstatic samadhi. He put a dead snake around the neck of a brahmana, a great mystic, a liberated soul, who was in the ecstasy of samadhi and trance. But still this was considered a very small offense. Prabhupada writes here in the purport, the offense of the king was most insignificant. And that's not just talking about the act itself, but as Prabhupada's talking about in the purport, the fact that he was the king. Because as a king, even if he killed a brahmana, Prabhupada says, he would not be held accountable for killing a brahmana. So we can see two reasons why such a concept is there. Prabhupada talks about this as a Vedic injunction, an instruction of the Vedas to treat authorities like this. So first of all, because the authority is taking a great amount of responsibility. And those of us who've never been in a position of high authority, we may not understand that. Now, I remember when I went from being a teacher to being the head of a school, and how, even though it was a small school, my responsibility expanded so much that it was astonishing to me. All of a sudden, I felt that I was personally responsible for whether or not every single student in my school received a proper education, was physically protected, was protected against abuse, had nice training in Krishna consciousness, was treated with respect, so many things that I felt I was personally responsible for every aspect of the school, whether the toilets were clean. I felt I was responsible for every sentence in every instruction given by every single teacher. And when I was just a teacher, I didn't feel that way. As a teacher, I felt I was responsible just for the kids in my class and just for while they were in my class. So it was sort of amazing to me. And what was also interesting for me is that it was rather lonely in the sense that people who weren't in that position or had never been in that position could not at all relate to what kind of burden of responsibility I had taken on. That even the other teachers couldn't relate to it. What to speak of the parents? That there really wasn't anybody other than other leaders in other places that could understand what I was carrying around all the time. And I remember also when we moved to North Carolina, where Bhir Krishnaswamy was staying most of the time with his disciples. And I really got to see firsthand on a daily basis what did it mean to be a guru. How much responsibility was he taking to train his disciples, sometimes on a minute-to-minute and daily basis? What kind of sacrifice did it mean? And the same when I was working on a GBC committee and I was sitting in on GBC meetings and seeing the sort of problems that they have to deal with and the amount and level of responsibility that they're willing to take on. Now we can just imagine the level of responsibility of the president or the prime minister of a country or Mark Frickett was king of the whole world. And in those days, the leaders were considered responsible even for bad weather, as we hear in the killing of the, the dying of the sons of the Brahmanas in Dwarka. They were responsible if somebody died at an untimely age. They were responsibility, responsible for disease and anxiety within their kingdoms. Nowadays, our political leaders say that they're not even responsible for the state of the economy. They blame it on something else. Uh, They certainly wouldn't take responsibility for the weather. So when someone has a tremendous amount of responsibility like that, if they're not given leeway 
to make mistakes without punishment. They can't do their job. When you're in a position of great responsibility, you often have to make decisions very quickly without having sufficient information. I mean, sometimes you have the luxury of doing extensive data gathering before making, a, making decisions and really understanding the whole situation and hearing from all the parties involved. But that's not always possible. Sometimes you simply have to make a decision. And even if you have the luxury to get all the information, you may never get actually all the information. There may be something that comes out later. At a certain point, you have to make a decision, just like a judge in a court case. So even today, if a judge makes a wrong decision or a jury makes a wrong decision, the judge is not punished. I read a book many years ago about people who were imprisoned and later pardoned by the government but the judges and the juries in the cases that convicted the person were never convicted of criminal offense themselves. I mean, unless they had done something knowingly. Because you have to make the best decision. You have to make the best decision with the information that you have. And if you're going to be criticized for making a mistake, then you're not going to be able and willing to move forward. You're going to have to be afraid to move forward. And therefore, it's necessary if we are willing to accept the protection and the care of leaders to allow them to make mistakes without punishment. And Prabhupada's talking here even about very great mistakes. He's not talking just about small mistakes. I'm sure most people would agree that, all right, the leader should be able to be excused from making small mistakes, but the problem is that our line for what we consider to be small mistakes and big mistakes has gotten so low that it's very difficult for leaders to do practically anything. And this is true even again at the family level, where children are taken away from their parents by the government and put into foster care, or where women leave their husbands, and so forth and so on, over what used to be considered 20, 30 years ago, very small mistakes. I, I think we forget many times how uh, we're very influenced by the norms of our particular culture and time. I brought up before that the non-devotees, especially in doctoral courses, they're very honest that empiric knowledge is flawed. And one of the flaws of empiric knowledge is they say that everyone interprets what we perceive with our senses through the cultural norms of the time and the place in which we live. So what's considered normal and even good at one time, 20 years later can be considered bad. And the reverse, what's considered bad at one time, can be considered good. I mean, if we look at the changing attitudes towards abortion, or towards homosexuality, or towards early marriage, uh, we'll find that the view of what's good and what's bad has changed very dramatically in the last 40 years. Such that if you were to read a book or see a film from that time on those subjects, you would be shocked. <laughs> at the view and the attitude of the people involved. And this is true, you know, sometimes we may see that as progress. I suppose we always see it as progress. That doesn't mean it's necessarily so. Probably in some ways those things are progress, and in some ways they're not. But we tend to think that the views of our time are much more enlightened than the views of other times. So what was tolerated uh, from the leaders in former times now we consider to be very serious offenses. 
So one reason, again, that we've gone over why the Vedic injunctions are such is otherwise the leaders can't do their job properly. If the leaders are going to be condemned for small mistakes, and what to speak if they're going to be punished for small mistakes, then they can't do their job. They're handicapped. It's, it's as if their hands and feet are tied and they will not have the impetus to do their work. We could say this refers not only to being able to make decisions, but also to facility. So historically, people in leadership positions have always been given more facility than other people. Now that facility takes different forms depending on the kind of leadership. So somebody who's a brahmana, they're given the facility that the society maintains them. They don't have to worry about their income. They can concentrate on study, they can concentrate on teaching without worrying about income. I mean, just like yesterday, I was asked by a very, very large devotee school if I would work on some curriculum project. And this, I've done this sort of work before, and it requires a tremendous amount of concentration and focus without distraction. And I said, well, I'd be happy to work on it, but I'm going to be in India at the time that you need it done. And if you want me to do it, you need to provide me with proper facility. You need to provide me with an office and a desk and an internet connection and what I need to do the work. I said, if I've got to be worried about finding my own facility, I won't have the mental peace to be able to sit down and do this in my experience. So it's exactly like that. Many, many years ago, I was asked to do some research and writing in Europe. And the devotees who asked me to do it, they gave me everything I needed. You know, they sent me a ticket to come there. They gave me a nice room and desk and, and equipment. And they made sure that I had nice prasadam. And then everything was just taken care of. And then I was working 12 to 14 hours a day on this wonderful project. It was uh, actually one of the happiest times of my life where I could just concentrate. So that's the sort of facility given to the Brahmana leaders that they're just, Prabhupada said, they're like the children of society, the renunciates and the brahmanas, that they don't have any anxiety, they're taken care of, they're given that facility. And that facility is not given to others. Other people are supposed to have to worry about their money and, and how they're going to earn it and how they're going to pay their bills and how they're going to be taken care of. And the brahmanas are supposed to be free from such anxiety. Why? Because they're taking some responsibility for, the, for leading the society. The Ksatriyas also are given another kind of facility. Ksatriyas are given facility of great sense gratification because they're in a different mode of nature. So Ksatriyas are given the facility of living in beautiful homes and wearing beautiful clothing. And we read about how Krishna and his queens, uh, they'd play in the water and then they'd give the clothing to the entertainers. You know, people in that position, they'd often wear clo- a particular piece of clothing maybe only one time. And it would be rich silk covered with jewels. And the kings were allowed to have many wives. And, they were, and, they were, and a lot of honor from the society, a lot of prestige from the society. And that way their desires, because those in that mode of nature, in the mode of passion, they have a great desire for honor and prestige. So that way that desire is fulfilled and they can be peaceful to do their work. If that's not given by the society, then people in that position will seek honor and prestige in other ways, and it will interfere with their being able to guide the country. 
So people who take responsibility are also given more facility. They must be given more facility. They must have their basic, what they need to do their work and what they need psychologically also taken care of. Now in response, those leaders give those they lead facility. It's a reciprocal agreement. The Brahmins are giving the people in general the transcendental knowledge and the vision in order to lead happy and successful lives. Kshatriyas are giving people everything they need materially to be happy and peaceful. Kshatriyas are making sure the citizens have no anxiety, that there's plenty of clean, pure water and, and pure, healthy food, even proper weather and proper living facilities and roads and schools and medical care. And the Kshatriyas are also making sure that the citizens' tax money is engaged in yagya for their purification. The Kshatriyas are making sure that the Brahmanas are protected and are able to give genuine spiritual knowledge to the people in general. So they're taking, the Brahmins and Kshatriyas are taking care of people on every level, physical, emotional, mental, social, and spiritual. For as Prabhupada would often say, peace and prosperity. So although much was given to the Brahmin and Kshatriya leaders, uh, they were actually giving much more than they were taking. They were, they were taking, as we said, that kind of responsibility. So in that way also the leaders were not criticized. You know, nowadays often leaders are expected to give without being given any kind of facility at all. Oh, please take care of everyone and do your job with nothing to take care of you. And if you then end up try to get what you need, then you're criticized. Oh, why are these people taking something that others don't have? Uh, so that become, makes it very difficult both practically and psychologically for people in leadership positions to do their work. So those are two reasons why the leaders are treated like that, for their own sake. But we see a really important key, because we may be thinking on hearing this, well, wait a minute. We've seen that people in leadership positions, they just simply take advantage of these things, and instead of reciprocating and helping those they are following, they exploit those that they are following. The gurus exploit their followers. The political leaders exploit the citizens. The teachers and the priests, they exploit their followers. And we could list so many stories, not, not only, unfortunately, not only from the larger society, but even from our Vaishnav Sangha. We could list stories we could be talking for the next 10 years nonstop about all the ways in which political leaders and religious leaders have exploited the people. What to speak if we go down to the business leaders, how they've exploited the people. Simply exploiting. And therefore we think the key is, all right, since the leaders in Brahman, Ksatri, and Vaishya positions have just been exploiting, the husbands have been exploiting the wives, the parents have been exploiting the children. 100, 150 years ago, the parents were sending the children to work in factories and destroying their health in order to get their money and so forth. So therefore, we can no longer treat leaders we can, with respect. We can no longer give leaders any leniency. Don't give them any special facility and don't give them any leniency in terms of doing something wrong. But that's not the solution. The solution isn't that you take away the facility and the power and the respect given to leaders. That's our modern solution. 
if we look at democracy, democracy is not only that the citizens vote. Democracy is also that there's separation of powers and weakened government. So a president in a modern democracy has very little power compared to a king. We have the legislative, judicial, and executive branch, a separation of powers. Basically, if you look at, say, the American Constitution, the basic Constitution, you'll see that the intention is to take away the power of the leaders. And we find this going on even in our Vaishnava Sangha. I mean, we'll, we'll be honest here. At, in, in our ISKCON society, there's been many regulations passed by the GBC to take away the power and authority of those acting as gurus. So it's a very similar concept that we've had people who abuse their power, so let's still have those people in positions, but let's take away most of their power. In that way, we'll try to take away most of their ability to do harm. Of course, when you do that, you also take away most of their ability to do good. And we have in the earth now proliferation of the bad. <laughs> we have bad philosophy and bad teachings. We have bad government. We have bad businesses. We have bad food production. We have bad skills and entertainment and production of goods. So we're simply just like it's very hard to buy a high-quality bookcase unless you want to spend a lot of money. So it's hard to find good quality food. It's hard to find good quality government. And it's hard to find good quality education and training. So weakening the leaders has not done anything. It hasn't really, all right, so we, we don't have their same ability to harm us? No, it's not a fact. The leaders are still harming us just as much as they were before, but we don't have the facility for somebody to come and do good. So the solution here is in the statement of the purport where Prabhupada says in the Vedic way of life the king is trained to become a Rajarshi or a great saint although he is ruling as king. So this is the key. The key is to train those in leadership positions which includes everyone who becomes a parent and every man who becomes a husband how to be a good leader how to lead well. Of course, there's some attempt at this in modern society. Before you can be the principal of a school, you have to get two years of training. Before you can be the superintendent of schools, you have to get more training. We don't have that for our political leaders. Our political leaders don't have to have any particular kind of training. In many denominations, before you can become a priest, you have to undergo a certain kind of training. But in the Vedic society, such training is given from early childhood. In fact, we could say such training was given to prepare the womb, the mentality of the parents to prepare the womb. So training was given even then. How to train people to be qualified. And if you don't have qualified people who are properly trained then if you simply say, okay, we should just say that the king can do no wrong, the guru can do no wrong, the husband can do no wrong, it is going to be chaos and it is going to be exploitation. You can't just take one piece of the equation 
and think that things are going to work. Basically, both things have to be done simultaneously. There has to be training for the leaders and there has to be training for the followers. And since most people have some level of leadership responsibility, there's very few people who have no responsibility for any other human being other than themselves. Uh, So this training, it should be done all over the society. Therefore, the key is education. Therefore, the key is the head of the society or the brahmanas. That's the key. Therefore, Srila Prabhupada stressed so much the creation of Brahminical cultures and Brahminical society. So I'm going to be bluntly honest in saying that at this point, as of July 17, 2012, I would say that the Vaishnav Sanghas of the world uh, collectively have not been very successful in this mission. That we do not see more than a modicum of such training going on anywhere. We have only, there's only a, a small handful of schools for children. Prabhupada says the king was trained to become a Rajarshi or a great saint. He meant from childhood. He didn't mean that there was just some graduate master's or doctoral course when someone's already 20 or 30 years old. But training from childhood when a person is malleable. So we only have a handful of schools, and we have to say that even most of the schools that we have, I'm sure the people running the schools would be the first to tell you, that they're far from what we'd like to have as the ideal. How many really ideal training situations for world leaders do we have in the world run by our Vaishnava Brahmanas? Very, very few, uh, if any. You know, and the ones that we have, are, again, I think we would all agree, are not up to what we would like. And what about training for adults? So adults who decide, okay, I want to come to Krishna consciousness. So obviously there's some attempts, and those attempts are spreading, but the amount that needs to be done is great. And that's the only solution. Now if we find it difficult to be a leader, or if we lament at the way leaders are being treated, the only solution is proper training for leaders. And proper training for the followers. When the leaders are properly trained and the leaders are properly qualified, then we can expect that we can also train the followers to be respectful to the point that Srila Prabhupada's talking about in this purport, which again, from our perspective today, is, is inconceivable and, and almost abhorrent. Oh, I have to, my, my leader has to do no wrong. We saw that Srila Prabhupada often acted this way in his management of ISKCON, which frankly bewildered many of us that Srila Prabhupada wouldn't like to take a person out of a leadership position. And if the devotees in a temple took someone out of a leadership position, Prabhupada would sometimes put the person right back in. Now, that was his, his training, that was his mood. Obviously, in the Shastra, there are also times when the leader is punished. Now, we think about Vena, who was taken, who was killed as a bad king, Amoga, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where his in-laws desired his death because he had offended Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sukracharya as a guru, where Bali Maharaj rejected him as a guru, 
So this idea that the leader can do no wrong, the leader should not be punished, it's not an absolute idea. It's a general idea. There is a line uh, where if a leader crosses that line, then they have to be punished or they are removed from their position of leader. Otherwise, you would definitely have exploitation. But that line was much, 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 much higher person than we have today. The person in the leadership position didn't have to be afraid that at every step they could be criticized and at every step they could be taken down. And of course, just like here, Shringi, he's not, we were talking about this the other day, that he didn't have any authority. And in one sense he did as a Brahmana on top of that, as being superior to the Kshatriya, but he really didn't have any authority to punish the king. What to speak of to take that action on his own without consultation with other brahmanas who were senior to him. He acted precipitously, without thought, without consultation, without checking with the scriptures, without seeing whether or not his action was commensurate with the behavior of the king, which is, of course, the point that... Uh, one of the points that Shamakarishi is making. So Shamakarishi is making the point that, first of all, the king is considered the best of all human beings, not a Indram. Indram means the chief and therefore should not be condemned, and also that the punishment didn't fit the crime. So when a, a person in authority is punished, the punishment should, anybody, the punishment should fit the crime. Not that for a small offense there's a great punishment. And how do we determine what is a big offense, what is a small offense? For this one needs to have qualified brahmanas. Shamakarishi was able to discern that this offense was a small offense. Prabhupada called it a most insignificant offense. I might not be able to have that discretion. I might look at it and say, well, Shamakarishi was a liberated soul, a perfected mystic yogi in a trance of ecstasy. He had done no wrong, and the, which is how, of course, Shringi saw it. And Maharaj Parikit had committed a great offense by insulting him with a dead snake. Therefore, it was a very great offense. He had offended a Brahmana. He had offended a Vaishnava. And therefore, uh, an offense like that against a Brahmana is very, very serious. So one might think like that. But one, again, has to have really qualified Brahmanas who are sober, who consult with the Shastras, who are able to discern things as they are, and they can determine what is a great offense and what is not. The way this should have been handled is that Shamakarishi himself should have been consulted. And if he felt that some action needed to be taken, he could have consulted with other brahmanas and consulted with the scriptures and decided upon the proper action, if any was to be taken at all. So I don't believe that this translation and purport are meant to tell us to have some sort of blind obedience to our leaders. We don't see that that works very well. And many times in reading these these sort of verses and purports, devotees who think I want to be surrendered say, well, that means that I should just accept whatever my leader does. I mean, we've seen instances where a person had a leader who was proved to engage in in very, very abominable and sinful activities, and the followers still remain attached. We've seen this even in our Vaishnava Sanghas, and we've certainly seen this out in the world in general. I mean, there are people who are still following Adolf Hitler, what to speak of anything else. So we don't want to encourage this sort of blind following. Prabhupada says, in fact, 
in 434 Bhagavad Gita purport that blind following is condemned. So that's not what we want. But we do want to train people and to train ourselves to really be competent leaders. It has to go together. And without doing this, we will not have a peaceful, prosperous society and we will not have a real basis for spreading Krishna consciousness. When there's no respect for authority, when there's no facility given to authority, then nothing can go on properly. So we can think, what am I doing to help train myself to be a proper leader and to help train other leaders? How am I contributing? directly or indirectly? And how do I treat those who've taken positions of responsibility? Again, I I don't believe that we should go to the level Srila Prabhupada's talking about in this purport without doing the other half. But that doesn't mean that we should go to the extreme of thinking that people have taken leadership positions simply for name and fame and for the facility they get, which uh, they do get some facility, they should get some facility, and not see the sacrifices and the responsibility that such people are also taking. And what to speak of seeing this way for our political leaders, what about seeing this way for those who've taken responsibility within the Vaishnav Sanghas, within the societies of the devotees? that even if they make some mistake, even if they make a terrible mistake, uh, still that a person's taken up such, such responsibility should always be honored. They should be treated, we should treat everybody with respect. That's the key to entering to the higher stages of bhakti, amani amani dena, kirtaniya siddhahari, everybody with respect. But we should give special respect and a special consideration to those who've taken on special responsibility. So I'm going to stop here if there's any questions or comments. Go ahead, Nara. Okay, um, I was, you made an interesting point as sort of a, a preface to your class. A comment you made even before you read the translation what to speak of the report, and you, you commented that we may find this a little hard to understand or contrary to the way we think in this age. When I say this age, 2012, which was only, as you said, 50 years after Prabhupada wrote his reports, and uh, some of, you know, barely, not even 40 years. Um, how, if Prabhupada's books are meant to be the... Uh, the ultimate scripture for us for the next 10,000 years, how is it in the future that people will be able to understand and, and really appreciate Prabhupada's purports? You know, it's even in the, was it an Maharaj translated after Prabhupada departed, they seem a lot more, you know, quote-unquote, up-to-date and um, relevant, but yet in mean, 10,000 years, as, as time progresses, do you think there'll be any issues with regard to uh, you know, grasping the real meaning and, and understanding what's being said? Wow. Wow. Uh, well, uh, well, 
Wait a minute, turn off Wait, these speakers, turn otherwise I'm getting bored. Yeah, I think that there's a problem, which is one reason why we have parampara, that every leader, every acharya, every guru has to present things in terms of the particular culture. Like Srila Prabhupada said to Bhaktisananta Sarasvati, oldest of all but a new dress, miracle done, your divine grace. So there really is a reality that there's Deshkalapatra. Krishna is called he who knows expertly how to deal with time, place, and circumstances, and that he takes action according to time, place, and circumstances. So when we read a purport like this of Srila Prabhupada's and we discuss it amongst ourselves, therefore it's good of us to discuss it in terms of time, place, and circumstances. If we read the purport from today and say, okay, everybody, whatever your temple president, whatever your GBC, whatever your guru, whatever your husband, whatever your father and mother do, it's perfect. They can do no wrong. The king, Prabhupada says, can do no wrong in this purport. So just see all your authorities like that. Nobody can do any wrong. And whatever they do, just follow them. Then we're going to have, you know, at some point a Jim Jones scenario where people are drinking cyanide Kool-Aid. So if we're going to take these purports and apply and interpret them like that in our present situation, we're going to cause great harm. Therefore, we have to look at the purport in its entirety. And Srila Prabhupada also says in today's purport, that the king was trained as a Rajarsi or as a saint. So that the concept of having this sort of what to us is an incredible amount of respect and obedience towards authority is coupled with the fact that the authority was very highly qualified. And if we're going... We, I see these purports as more understanding a principle and pointing us in the direction that we should go rather than, say, taking half of the purport and saying, let's apply that half of the purport without the other half. And I, I don't see that as a problem with Srila Prabhupada's being the law books for the next 10,000 years, but we're sure always going to have to understand them in terms of the situation that we're in. That's unavoidable. Otherwise, why are we giving classes at all? I mean, you could say we're giving classes for our own personal purification and for Tishanticha or Ramanticha, But we're also doing this because we have to apply these teachings to our present circumstance. That's the job of the brahmanas at any time and place. Otherwise, why have sadhu? Guru, sadhu, shastra. So the the guru applies to a particular individual and the sadhu applies to society in general. You cannot just take things from the shastra and say, okay, this has to be applied in exactly the same way in all time, place, and circumstance. And you're violating the very shastra itself. In fact, if you were to say to take Srila Prabhupada's purports and apply them exactly the same way in all circumstances, then you'd be violating other Srila Prabhupada's purports where he says that things have to be applied according to time, place, and circumstance. Thank you. Nice answer. Nobody else is going to ask a question right away. I'd like to answer the question. Um, my sister is a uh, professor of uh, world history. Uh, we had an argument about this very point about how 
in Vedic culture, the king is trained to take care of his citizens and um, uplift the whole society for spiritual advancement. She dismissed the whole thing. Uh, she couldn't find anywhere in her opinion throughout history where monarchy has been any good, uh, except for maybe King Solomon. Uh, especially she pointed out the monarchy in Europe, they were trained from a very young age. Uh, but look at the mess. So my question is not from the uh, how would you preach to people in general, if you could just put it in a nutshell, where if you're confronted with that kind of an argument, how would you kind of like approach it? Okay, so in some ways we're better off, but not in all ways. So if you compare the living under modern democracy to the living under the European monarchies, we have a difficult economic situation. We have polluted soil and air and water. We have a difficulty with crime. We have at this point 40% of children born out of marriage. We have a 50% divorce rate. We have a lot of problems with mental illness. I don't know the numbers, but there's a lot of people taking medication, psychotropic medicine. There's so many people taking psychotropic medicine and excreting it in their urine that most municipal water supplies in Western countries have psychotropic drugs in the water system. Oh. Did I just go out? Can you hear me? Can you hear me over Skype? So I'll just turn off the phone. Okay, I don't know how you're hearing me through the phone or through Skype, but anyway. So I see that in some ways we've improved and in some ways we've suffered. And we certainly have not achieved through modern democratic practices a world of peace and prosperity. So maybe there's still a third solution. So it's a fact that in modern human history, we do not have knowledge of a, of a good government, of any kind of government. And we really don't have experience like that. And if the, when most people are looking at monarchy, they're looking at medieval Europe when the Brahmanas were already corrupted. So it's true that the medieval kings were trained by the church, and it's true that the church was running the society, but the church itself was corrupt. So we're looking back in our scriptures beyond the point that any modern historian has knowledge of. They don't have knowledge of Maharaj Yudhisthira and Maharaj Pariket and what to speak of Lord Ramachandra. That's beyond their realm of what they accept as valid knowledge. So those would be my basic answers that democracy is not the panacea that we'd like to claim it is. Yes, it has many advantages. If you're going to have bad leaders, I suppose it's better to have a certain level of anarchy. 
you know, if your leaders are corrupt and your leaders are exploitive, take away a lot of the power and respect for your leaders and let people do more or less what they want. But that's not really the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is to have good leaders. And that what I hear this person saying is it's impossible to have good leaders. Just like we say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But there, the, these kings that described by Mike Mars Prigget, they didn't have absolute power. They were under the control of the Brahmanas. The Brahmanas were controlling each other and were under the control of the scriptures. There was also a system of checks and balances. It was just a different kind of system. So the concept that there should be checks and balances and the concept that there should be sharing of power and the concept that everybody should be accountable to somebody, that nobody, that the only autocrat is God. God is the transcendental autocrat and everyone else is a servant. That's a good concept. But I don't think you're going to be able to do it in a secular state where we don't know how to train people to be leaders. Okay, I think we should end here. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.